0: Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot. I'm Matt Risby. Hello, and joining me uh, as usual via the medium of uh, satellite technology is the man who wasn't there, Ed Davis. How are you doing, So, All right.
1: Alright, I mean, a bit bummed out that apparently I wasn't there. Um, I tried to be there, Um, but no, I'm alright. I was a bit down in the week because, uh, as I'm sure a lot of people who are kind of film savvy will know, uh, on Wednesday it was announced that the Dissolve, the Pitchfork-affiliated movie site run by a lot of very fine writers who left the AV club some years ago to form it, was uh, shuttering its doors, which uh, uh, was uh, something that had been kind of rumored the day before because the site stopped updating and it was very active so the fact it didn't post anything for like 12 hours was worrying but uh, it was still kind of a shock when the the hammer fell
0: it was all very very sudden um i know that they had to make cutbacks towards the end of last year just because of various financial things but it just yeah, it just kind of came out of nowhere um which is really sad because it was uh, uh, kind of unusual in today's day and age to find a site dedicated so uh, kind of thoroughly to the appreciation of films in a non-clickbait sense.
1: Yeah, and it, it you kind of feel, and a lot of people have said this, that it's a, a reflection on the film culture at the moment that a site like that, which was very focused and very intelligently written and was actually very, it was also very accessible, you know, they... Went out of their way to make sure that they weren't just writing for film uh, nerds or academics. Uh, and I think um, there was an interview with uh, Keith Phipps, the uh, uh, editor, and uh, Scott Tobias, one of the other chief editors, um, saying that they kind of fell between two stalls, in a sense because for people, some you know people felt that they were too populists. Uh, you know, like academics said they were too populist, and populists said they were too academic. But for me, I thought that was the kind of, they struck a really great balance there because you could get some really interesting and esoteric stuff. Like uh, Noel Murray had a, a a series where he basically wrote about film tie-ins, so like toys you would get for uh, films, and those essays were sometimes uh, quite personal, talking about his family and things like that. Or uh, Keith Phipps's uh, Laser Age column, where he talked about sci-fi cinema throughout the seventies, which was uh, you know really fantastic uh and then you know you just had great film reviews and you know a very lively chat and their movie of the week stuff was always great fun to read
0: so, mm, i loved movie of the week mm. um and they'd always pick uh, stuff that was very much in line um with our our kind of outlook i think there was a lot of the films that we picked on the own at 100 that appeared as movie of the week which is you know really lovely
1: yeah so uh, obviously it appealed to us but i, I always felt that it well something that could appeal to large could appeal to a large number of people if you know, people shared all their stuff and some of their stuff did do the rounds quite a lot i know tasha robinson's uh, article on uh, depictions of women in film got a lot of attention when it came out and uh, it's just a shame that they never see apparently they never transferred that to a, a kind of a broad audience you know i know that i went there every day and it was one of those sites i would just kind of click around at work and just see what had been updated but uh, i think it was it unfortunately was a site that had a very loyal core fan base which is not the sort of thing that you really need to keep a website running
0: Mm. we're in a world where advertisers only see monetary value in clicks therefore reducing everything to uh kind of pavlovian kind of finger presses uh is is kind of deeply disheartening. Where you know if they if they manage to monetize interesting content, then the would be you know still there.
1: Mm. And it's also a terrible shame because, like I say, uh, most of the people who founded the site left the AV club to go there, and they're people who had worked together for the better part of a decade in some cases, or certainly sort of the last five or six years, and now well their talents i'm sure will be found will hopefully find a home on other sites uh, it's just a shame that those people who went there and and wanted to work to continue working together and and, and seemed to kind of have a great rapport and to work together really well and uh, now probably ro- won't have that opportunity unless there's some kind of eccentric film loving billionaire out there who will uh, fund their efforts
0: mm, which if you're listening eccentric um film-loving millionaire, Um, there's a podcast need to fund him firstly, but also (laughs) throw those guys at the dissolver bone because, you know, I need to catch an even break. Um, But, yeah, we don't normally do um, topical stuff at the start of our artist profiles, but, you know, we thought this week it was worth mentioning, but uh, we shall plough on, Uh, like I say, with our artist profile. We've not had one of those for a while because we've been kind of doing various other things. Um, but we've got a few actually already recorded and lined up, so uh, you know you're going to get a slew of them now. We made a move for artist profiles, um, but this week, um, who are we talking about? Ed?
1: Uh, we're talking about Burt Lancaster, star mm. of several films, which ended up in our alternate 100, and that uh, for us seemed to be reason enough to uh, to discuss some of his films uh, at length.
0: I thought you were just going to say star of several films, <laughs> which would be the most underwhelming. Um, of at least of, five uh, films. <laughs> at least five films. He did five pretty good films uh, that we've picked out. Well, four really good films and and one stinker. Um, but yeah, uh, as is customary, um, we'll start by talking about um, Bert Lancaster's debut slash breakthrough, which happens to be the same thing. His breakthrough was his first film appearance, which was... In the killers.
1: Sweet. I was over at Henry's. A couple of guys came in and tied up me and the cook. They shoved us in the kitchen. They said they were going to shoot you when you came in to supper. Well, George thought I ought come over and tell you.
0: There's nothing I can do about it.
1: I can tell you what they look like.
0: I don't want to know what they're like. Thanks for coming.
1: Don't you want me to go and see the police?
0: No. That wouldn't do any good.
1: Isn't there something I could do?
0: There ain't anything to do. Couldn't you get out of town? No. I'm through with all that running around. Why do they want to kill you? I did something wrong once. Thanks for coming. So the killer's are kind of iconic uh, film noir and uh, kind of set him on that early path of kind of um, physically imposing roles and... Um, I mean, he was a, a kind of a trained gymnast and kind of circus performer so he seemed that seemed like a kind of a good fit for him um and that kind of did typify his early career didn't it
1: yeah and also it's uh, probably worth noting that he broke through slightly later in life um or, or moved into film acting you know when he's already in his 30s whereas i think usually people it, they may not become famous very early in life unless you're like jennifer lawrence or whatever but but even in those days, you know, someone like Humphrey Bogart would just be in the trenches, or, or John Wayne would be in the trenches for years and years and years, and eventually break through. Whereas he, you know, started there, and I think didn't bring any kind of weight or uh, expectation to him. So he was someone who uh, was very kind of uh, kind of new clay that people didn't really uh, have any opinions of prior to seeing the film. And I think that helps him. Playing the role of uh, of the Swede in the film, in that uh, he's a character who is you see him at various points throughout his life, so he's kind of amorphous.
0: Hmm. Um. It's very much a if anyone wanted to kind of get their head around what film noir was, The Killers would be quite a good accessible place to start because it has all those standard tropes in there, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, it's got a femme fatale. It's got a. It's got gangsters. It's got uh, a. It's got narration. It's got people trying to figure out a um, figure out a, a crime that's happened already, which is some a kind of a mark of it that uh, you see cropping up quite often. Um, it's also the kind of like a film noir spin on Citizen Kane, in that it starts with Lancaster's character dying, um, mm. being gunned down in his hotel room, and then it's all about an insurance investigator trying to figure out what happened and why he was killed. Mm. Uh, by talking all the to all the people in his life, which is uh, uh, quite an interesting direction for uh, uh, a, a film in that genre to go.
0: Hmm. Um, obviously something that based on something written by Ernest Hemingway, uh, quite hard nosed, uh, quite rough around the edges, um, and uh, remade, wasn't it? With but did Ronald Reagan play the role um, that Bert Lancaster originated?
1: No, he plays the villain in the, uh, the the man behind it all in the uh, later version. Who plays the Lancaster role? Uh, I don't know off the top of my head. Uh, I'll, okay. I'll look it up. But uh, yeah, Ray, Reagan in his last film role beco- before becoming governor of California, playing a rare villain.
0: Hmm, yeah. It's interesting that Bert Lancaster, someone at that stage of his career, was re- very inexperienced. Um, it, he was kind of trying to make cut his teeth on Broadway and do various bits and bobs but was kind of thrust into a lead role so soon.
1: Uh, yeah, I think that his physicality is a big part of it. And and I think for a young actor, a youngish actor, it's a great uh, showcase role, really, because because you see him at all these various points in his life. He, You get to see him initially, and he's kind of resigned to his fate. He knows that he's going to die. He knows that his past actions have caught up to him. And, but then you jump throughout time and you see him when he's you know, young and happy when he's uh, at, in the kind of uh, grips of despair, when he realises that everything's gone wrong. You see him be kind of wily when he's trying to put one over on the people he's helping in this uh, in this robbery that they're trying to take part in. Uh, and I think that that is, again, the fact that he was quite a new face really benefits that because you can see him shifting from all of these different uh, modes but uh, without seeming like it's uh, cu- trying to play to a pre-existing screen persona.
0: Yeah, it was Lee Marvin who um, played the Lancaster role, which kind of um, tells you about, just about all you need to know about the uh, the kind of tough guy archetype um, that Lancaster uh, kind of played in this one. Um, what do you make of his kind of early career, Ed?
1: Uh, I think that he did seem to get uh, not necessarily pigeonholed, but certainly he was, after this became a hit and I think was nominated for an Oscar, he certainly was drawn to those sort of roles again. The next film he made, was a film called Brute Force, which is uh, a really great prison movie that's uh, a lot of fun. It's um, him playing the guy who's trying to orchestrate a uh, prison break from uh, under the uh, auspices of a very cruel and repressive uh, captain who, who's in charge of the prison. And uh, there again, there's a certain he evokes a certain degree of nobility, but he's also a man existing in a very tough world, survived, surrounded by a criminal element. Uh, and the film to give a sense of how tough the film is, at one point he gets into a fist fight with the captain who starts to whip him with a chain of machine gun bullets. Wow, which is about as hard boiled an image as you can uh, find,
0: mm. yeah, yeah, and something that only someone like Bert Lancaster could pull off, mm. uh, yeah. Just looking at his early CV, uh, um, kind of in the first three or four years of his career, he did films film called Brew Force," Desert Fury, Kiss the Blood Off My Hands, The Flame and the Arrow, Vengeance at uh, Valley. Um, these all sound like Steven Seagal films to me.
1: <laughs> yeah, Kiss the Blood Off My Hands also sounds uh, like a very hardboiled ballad.
0: Mm, it does. It's probably a Western.
1: Yeah, uh, it sounds like it would be.
0: Yeah, yeah, but yeah. So the killer's uh, his his breakthrough. Um, we're going to talk now about his most successful film, um, and we're going to provide you with the caveat that records for films made before about 1980 a um, little bit patchy. Um, but we're pretty sure his most successful film financially uh, was his last film, uh, which was Field of Dreams. It was the last day of the season. Bottom of the eighth inning, we were way here. I'd been up with the club about uh, well, about three weeks, but I hadn't seen any action. Suddenly, old John McGraw points a bony finger in my direction and he says, "Right field." Yeah sir, I jumped up like I was uh, sitting on a spring, grabbed my glove, and ran out on the field. Did you get to make a play? I never hit the ball out of the infield. The was over. Mr. Lancaster slowed down notably uh, towards the end of his career. He was kind of uh, only really doing uh, a film a year for like the last decade of his of his life. But he still did a lot of interesting stuff. He did Atlantic City, a film we've talked about in the alternate One Hundred, and uh, he did Local Hero, another great movie in the early eighties. But uh, Field of Dreams as his last film. I think he made another film. Uh, after this was shot but it was released before Field of Dreams um, Field of Dreams is a very apt way to go out given the subject matter and the character he plays
1: yeah because he's uh, as you were saying he was a kind of a very athletic guy um, we'll talk about that in one of his other films in, in a few minutes I imagine but he was someone who was like we was saying very imposing very physical uh, actor so he's the perfect he has the perfect body to play someone who Uh, is believably kind of an old uh, baseball player who's fallen you know who's who's, you know left the sport behind to become a doctor Mm. and he has a certain gravitas to him but uh, certainly at that point in his life and for much of the really for the last 20 years of his career he was often cast in roles where you needed someone to give an air of authority or an air of kind of wounded grace and uh i think that he definitely embodies that as uh Archibald Graham in, uh, in Field of Dreams
0: mm. uh, it's a film that is um quite sentimental but not in a yes. kind of like saccharine way I've, it, it does straddle that uh that line uh kind of quite convincingly um but his as a send off um is very fitting um and his kind of character kind of disappears into the mist um in that film um in a way that you know a passing legend um probably should
1: yeah, it definitely feels like a a fitting way for him to go out, and also his character is the the guy who walks out of the kind of the field to uh help someone who's been injured, so he gives up the chance to be young again in order to do the noble thing, mm. which uh, kind of plays to he he was someone who could play lots of uh vicious characters or he could play characters who were very morally uh, ambiguous in a lot of his films so it's quite nice that his last role they got to play to uh the kind of decency that he seemed to give off in his uh, in his uh, real life that didn't necessarily come through on screen where he would get, even when he was older he would occasionally play like someone like his character in Atlantic City who's kind of a rascal
0: mm when you say rascal, he's a criminal. <laughs> um, but yeah, I suppose he's you know—he's no murderer. He, he claims to be. Um, but he, he's not really... He did play with his image um, in those kind of late years. Um, it's nice that, like, you talk about those classic movie stars, people like uh, James Stewart or Cary Grant or something like that. They very much had a persona. They very much had a type of film. They did. James Stewart did uh, kind of comedy and kind of more serious stuff. Um, But he was, you know, he was very rarely um, in kind of shades of grey, whereas Burt Lancaster always seemed to be.
1: Yeah, even some of his more noble characters, they were usually criminals who were were kind of, uh, at heart, were good, but they had done some terrible things. Or, you know, he was someone like his character in Sweet Smell Success or uh in al Gantry, which he won his oscar for where he's someone who is uh ruthless and manipulative Uh, Mm. and uh that that, that's the interesting thing about him is that you can kind of see if you watch a bunch of his films in a row um you can kind of see shades of different characters and and, uh recurring themes and tropes in them but he never had that clear of of a persona like a jimmy stewart or a cary ram which is why i think he had such a varied career
0: mm, yeah yeah um he wasn't kind of afraid to kind of mix it up either uh was he like even after his kind of perhaps heyday uh kind of 50s and 60s um he was not afraid to kind of do a mixture of like big action films uh dramatic roles he'd do stuff like turn up an airport um uh, kind of these big kind of Hollywood blockbusters, but then he'd also kind of uh, go to Europe and work with like Bernardo Bertolucci on something like 1900, or uh, do uh, the Leopard or the Conversation Piece with Lucio Visconti. You know, he he wasn't kind of someone to shy away from uh, doing kind of things that weren't perhaps as fashionable at the time.
1: The uh, the sense I get is that a lot of his decisions after he had he had his initial success and after he moved into Uh, producing, because he produced a lot of his own films, and he also produced films he didn't star in, like um, Marty, which won Mm. Best Picture in uh, 1955.
0: Cat Baloo and and lots of other films, yeah.
1: Um, After he had had that initial success, a lot of his choices seemed to boil down to, do I like this director? Mm -hmm. Uh, And um, if he liked someone, then he was probably more willing to do it, or if he liked the work, then he was perfectly happy to take a risk on it. Um, And I was thinking uh this week that in some ways um George Clooney is probably the closest we have to a modern day Burt Lancaster in that regard. I know everyone always says that he's the the modern day Cary Grant because he's, you know, very suave and charming, but certainly in terms of uh an actor who really takes the career into their own hands and moves beyond just acting to writing, producing and directing, uh, in order to shape their own destiny and and being willing to take a small a big part in a very small film or small part in a film that they find interesting to help it get made Um, Mm. he certainly seems to be a a similar uh something of a role model there
0: and Lancaster as well was very much preoccupied with liberal causes and um and and kind of very politically motivated as well um so I think the Clooney thing I've never really understood the Clooney Cary Grant thing apart from maybe the haircut um (laughs) you know But yeah, Berlancas seems much more kind of apt comparison.
1: It certainly, I think it's based more on a uh, maybe an outdated version of Clooney, maybe in his Mm. early days when he was just a pretty boy who had been on a TV show and who kind of had a he seemed like an old fashioned movie star in terms of his looks and his how he carried himself on screen. But as he uh, has become more successful and more involved in trying to guide his own path through Hollywood. He, he seems to uh, veer closer to the the Lancaster model than the Cary Grant model.
0: Yeah, um, I think someone must have come up with a Cary Grant soundbite just after they saw the film One Fine Day uh, in which uh, he kind of plays Cary Grant. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um,
0: so, you know, possibly it was that and it's kind of stuck. Um, but yeah, um, Field of Dreams. Um, a fitting way to to sign off. I'm um, going to kind of uh, plumb the depths of Mr Lancaster's career now. Um, someone who's made a lot of films, um, you know, is bound to make a few turds. Um, but we have turned to the ever-reliable guide of uh, Rotten Tomatoes, um, which is, you know, it takes the, the necessity for film critics away. Um, you know, we talked about the death of the the, the, the dissolve at the, at the top of the episode. Um, and now here we are championing Rotten Tomatoes. Um, we are becoming the enemy, had. Um But we're turning to them to find out what was his worst film, scientifically, because that's what Rotten Tomatoes is. Um, and we came up with the Cassandra Crossing.
1: Children are going to die. The children. The girl over there. What? Jennifer's crossing. Nothing. 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 There's a plane to warn them. Put flares on the track. Give them a signal. Any passengers attempting to escape from the trains of the a thousand lives are at stake here Including you and your men
0: In true shot-reverse-shot fashion I didn't watch this um, <laughs> Because why would I? It's terrible um, And you did it, uh, so I wouldn't have to um, Why does it stink the joint up? Uh,
1: well it's uh, What uh, is cited by uh, Roger Ebert in an article he wrote about uh, Film rules for the 80s Or film grammar for the 80s Where he came up with terms to describe Certain kinds of films and It was an example he gave of uh, what he calls the box rule, which is, Mm. if you see a film and on the poster it's a lot of famous people's faces uh, and they're all in boxes with names like The Professor or something next to it, it's probably uh, something you should avoid. And Mm. the Cassandra Crossing, he gave an example, most uh, uh, Agatha Christie adaptations, most disaster movies kind of fall into that. And uh, it's a a perfect description of uh, the Cassandra Crossing because it's a very... Uh, kind of cheesy and not especially well-made disaster movie about a group of hapless criminals who try to rob a uh, research facility. They get infected. One of them gets infected. Oh, really, they all get infected with this uh, incredibly dangerous virus. Only one of them escapes, but he ends up on a train, which is going from, I think, Italy to Switzerland, and it all becomes about... uh, the efforts of the people on the train to try and contain the uh, contagion within the place uh, or, and uh, Bert Lancaster playing a uh, morally dubious general sitting in a very uh, barely furnished room that looks like they just found a cupboard in the studio somewhere uh, trying to figure out a way to uh, destroy the train because he thinks that the only way that they're going to resolve this without millions of people dying is to kill everyone on the train.
0: Wow. Uh, much like the worst film of Susan Sarandon, you would described, I am desperate now to see Cassandra Crossing. The Cassandra Crossing, should I say.
1: It's got an amazing cast. I mean, it's got, uh, obviously, Bert Lancaster not doing a huge amount because, like I say, he's kept pretty much uh, separate from the entire cast, but uh, it's got Sophia Loren and Richard Harris as a kind of bickering uh, divorced married couple who happen to be on the same train. Um, Martin Sheen as... Uh, a young man who is going out with uh, ava Gardner um giving uh, one of his uh, worst performances uh just kind of constantly looking really sweaty uh o j simpson is wow. uh, in it in as a as basically o j Simpson uh, no he's playing gay initially a priest and he seems very uh ill suited for that and kind of seems very menacing but then it's revealed that he's actually a uh I think CIA agent or FBI agent who's there to track down Martin Sheen who's a criminal uh and yeah so it's, it's got a big cast of, of interesting people and it's quite weird seeing this big mainstream action film starring Richard Harris <laughs> as mm. the lead because you wouldn't think of him as someone to kind of uh, uh anchor that but uh yeah it, it's shot terribly by George P Cosmatos who was the guy who directed uh, Rambo 2 uh, no sorry uh first rambo first blood part 2 to mm. be correct uh, yeah. and it's just it's just not terribly totally good from an action point of view they they're very bad at um establishing where things are there's a bit at one point where a bridge collapses and the train splits in half and you're not really sure who's on what half of the train or who's surviving and then suddenly it turns out that everyone was all on the same side at the point that the train broke down but for a good five to ten minutes it's just really confusing as to what's happening uh and it's just there's just a very kind of basic lack of craft on play.
0: um you say that burt lancaster was just in a box uh for the whole time or like a, a kind of a, a scantily decorated room um was it one of those cases where a uh perhaps unscrupulous producer had hired them for say a day's work and then tried to film as much as they can around them by sticking them in one location
1: an afternoon's work, I would say. It's right. like if he probably is in two locations in the entire film. He's in that room and then the corridor. He walks into look, walk into and out of the room.
0: Oh, and that's
1: it. That's it. He's he basically doesn't communicate with the rest of the cast uh, except via phone, and it does just look as if a job where they said to him, "We'll pay you." X amount of money, you don't really have to do a huge amount. You just need to uh, lend this character an air of gravitas, and you know he does the most that he can. But when all you're expected to do is sit in a room and just kind of talking to a speakerphone for large amount large lengths of time, uh, there are limits to what even the the kind of the great actors can do with that material.
0: Mm. It reminds me of that story from um, the film uh, *Witchfinder General*, uh, where the the director hired um, an actress, I think. Her name is Hilary Dwyer, um, and uh, he hired her for, I think, like, two or three days shooting. She was just like, oh, that's cool, that money's good, whatever, and then proceeded to shoot her for, like, 20-hour days for three days. <laughs> she was the film's lead, and she was just like, I've been on the shoot for three days. like, yep, you're going to work all three days. <laughs> uh, we can't afford to pay you for any more days, uh, so I'm just going to make the days as long as possible. Um, But, yeah, it reminds me of one of those kind of... Uh, corner cutting techniques um, but yeah uh, the Cassandra crossing the less uh, about which said the better um, we're going to talk now about Bert Lancaster's oddity and that's it we said he wasn't afraid to take risks or kind of uh, do interesting work but one film really stands out uh, a passion project of his um, that uh, was a kind of big disaster at the time um, but has gone on to kind of kind of achieve cult status. Um, And uh, it's really rather good. It's uh, The Swimmer. Well, I've got to be on my way. I'm swimming home.
1: You're swimming
0: home? I figured out there's a river of pools all the way to my house.
1: Crazy idea. I think it's a brilliant idea. Well, what are you doing it for? Why do you want to do it? I think it's very original. I mean, I think it's an adventure.
0: Come with me. Um... Yes, a very odd film uh, in the sense that it's based on a 12-page short story um, by, oh God, who wrote it again? I've forgotten.
1: Uh, John Cheever.
0: That's right. The master of the short story, John Cheever.
1: And uh, um, a plot point in an episode of Seinfeld. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yep, absolutely. Um, but he uh, is about a man who uh, decides one day to swim home from a pool party, Um realises there's a swimming pool in every garden between his home and the house that he's currently at and he's going to swim in every pool and essentially swim the length of the valley and the story is 12 pages long and it's just like a very kind of small snippets of of uh, kind of conversation and moments in a day of a life of a kind of a, a troubled man as he attempts to do this kind of a slightly strange thing um, but the film kind of spins that out into something um, kind of really kind of cool, it's like these little vignettes of uh, kind of american kind of suburbia it's kind of uh very kind of very 60s um but uh also very interesting very brave performance from um from mr lancaster he has to go to some kind of quite dark psychological places um and yeah it's just a really unique peculiar film
1: yeah it's it's interesting to compare it to the killers in some way because the killers is also based on a short story that's uh, incredibly short um the killers the short story basically makes up the first maybe 10 minutes of the film of that film and then they just kind of come up with a huge amount of extra material to kind of contextualize the opening scene mm. uh, in the case of the swimmer they don't add a huge amount to those 12 pages but what they do is they kind of shift the focus a little bit because the the swimmer, the story, because it's so short, they it, it's very easy for Chiva to kind of hide the fact that there may be something terribly wrong with uh with this man. Um it's that you get a sense that something's wrong because he's doing a crazy thing, but it's presented more in kind of a whimsical way, and then in the last like paragraph there's kind of a, a gut punch, whereas you can't really maintain that for ninety minutes in the the more objective form of film. So there, they place hints all along the way that you know people look at him weird when he talks about certain things, and there's there is a kind of a a growing sense of of menace and unease throughout. I think mm. it's very interesting how that slight shift in focus uh, allows the the story to play out in essentially the same way, but it gives you a very very different experience. Yeah, it
0: certainly does. And yeah, it kind of builds much slower. It's, uh, I mean, it's. I watched it, and uh, like you say, the film achieved cult status. Um, and um, no higher cult status can be awarded than it would be screened at my cult film night, the Five and Dime Picture Show, <laughs> um, which means it's truly ensconced in the cult film canon. Um, but I watched it with a whole bunch of people who'd never seen it before, and uh, a whole bunch of people who'd never read the story before, and to them, the kind of the the last act reveal. Is was kind of huge. Uh, I I knew it was coming and kind of could spot the signs all the way there. Um, but if you don't, um, it's kind of very carefully played.
1: Yeah, and uh, they do a very good job of dropping hints without tipping their hand too much. Mm. Um, you just kind of get the sense from the way people respond to him that uh, there's a, a lot of history between this man and his neighbours, which is being unspoken about because you know, they're all middle-class suburbanites in upstate New York. And they, they don't really want to talk about uh, bad things that have happened in the past, uh, mm-hmm. whether it's, uh, you know, just arguments and disagreements or something, uh, kind of more dark and tragic. So there's lots of unsaid things that come across in just little movements and, and, uh, little moments of performance, which, uh, the entire cast handle very well as, as, and, you know, uh, a key part of it is the fact that Lancaster does a very good part of being this kind of very jocular guy for a large part of the film, who's just kind of going up to people and saying, "Hey, can I, you know, go for your pool and everything?" and then just having these, what to him, very light-hearted, normal conversations, but uh, everyone else kind of treats them in a very different way. Mm. Uh, and I think the he does a very good job of not playing the part kind of too archly, which could which could completely undermine it
0: yeah why do you think the film uh was a failure um given that um it was kind of you know starring one of the biggest film stars in the world uh, kind of the height of his powers um you know uh kind of coming off the back of some of his biggest films um you know, what like, do you think it's just too odd for mainstream audiences to accept or i mean this was nineteen sixty eight it was kind of like the very start of that you know, Easy Rider's Raging Bulls period, um, where there was some kind of very interesting films being made. Do you think that it was just perhaps made five or six years too early?
1: I think that probably plays a big part of it. I also think that it's the sort of film where it's so hard to describe what's great about it, um, because a lot of it's to do with tone and atmosphere and um, sort of revelations that you can't really talk about without ruining it or just these kind of really intangible things that you only really know from experiencing it. Mm-hmm. And and when you just kind of boil it down to its plot, you you know, it's very hard to kind of just say, yeah, it's about a guy who just kind of swims. Uh, and it's like, well, what else? Well, there's other stuff, but you can't really go into it. And I think that that makes it, it's kind of a hard thing to kind of really get a handle on. And also, uh, you know, critics at the time probably weren't, attuned to that kind of really weird ambiguous style of filmmaking coming from american filmmakers. Mm. It feels very much like something that you know maybe Antonioni would have made a few years earlier but because it's in english i think it's something that people weren't really um kind of prepared for.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's weird the life the film has had since then because like i say it's gone on to become um very popular with kind of cult audiences. Um but weirdly something like The Swimmer that you'd think would be um prime fodder for criterion re release and kind of reappraisal, um has only ever been released on Blu ray by Grindhouse Releasing, who uh a company who kind of uh specialise in exploitation stuff and uh kind of very offbeat stuff. Um which is kind of a very unusual position for the film to be in.
1: Yeah, especially considering how many of Lancaster's film criterion have put out. It seems mm. like it would fit within their uh, apparent mandates to try and get as many of his great works out there. Um, but, you know, great. It's it's out there and it's, it looks really, really nice. Um, the, uh, the Grindhouse version comes with a really nice essay from uh, Stuart Gordon, director of mm. Reanimator, amongst other things, um, talking about how much he likes it, which is uh, weird <laughs> <laughs> because uh, it doesn't have any kind of dismemberment in it. I mean, mm. I know that uh, Stuart Gordon has a background directing, like, mammoth plays and stuff, but he um, still wouldn't be the first person I would think of. As, like, you know who I think would really like The Swimmer?
0: Yeah. If you get the Blu-ray as well, there's also... Um, I would definitely recommend checking it out. There's uh, the audio kind of book of The Swimmer, the actual short story, uh, read by um, John Cheever himself, which is pretty cool. Oh, cool. As a the extra, so... Uh, Seek it out if you uh, wanted to get some extra value out of your home media purchases. <laughs> um, the good folks at Grindhouse uh, releasing have got you covered. Um, so yeah, that's uh, Burt Lancaster's odyssey. oddity. Um, Andy's odyssey in many ways. See how I turned that uh, kind of mispronunciation into a into a segue? Seemless. Love it. I know. Um, so that leads us to talk about um, Burt Lancaster's kind of defining work um, for someone who did a lot of work um and a lot of great work that is quite difficult um uh, I mean, we talked about uh the Atlantic City on the alternate one hundred uh one of his kind of uh, greatest roles we've talked about uh well, we haven 't even touched upon like stuff like birdman uh birdman from Alcatraz um you know things that were kind of went on to be truly iconic like from here to eternity uh Gantry which he won his Oscar for. Um, But we've gone for uh, the sweet smell of success.
1: What has this boy got that
0: Susie likes? Integrity. Acute. Like indigestion. What does this mean? Integrity. A pocket full of firecrackers. Waiting for a match. You know, it's a new wrinkle. To tell you the truth, I never thought I'd make a killing on some guy's integrity. I'd hate to take a bite out of you. You're a Cookie full of arsenic. His greatest performance, um probably a lot of people's greatest work, all coming together in one place, which is what makes that film so good.
1: Yeah, it certainly is the best when we talk about the idea of him playing morally ambiguous or, or you know, maybe not even ambiguous, just morally quite dark characters. Uh, his character, J.J. J. Hunsecker, the uh, king of the New York gossip columnists, is probably his. Uh, Darkest and most acerbic character, mm. um, and I think uh, it's one of those cases where his the fact that he is you know a movie star and he's got movie star good looks really helps with it because he's allowed to be just so cruel, and uh, like he's still likable because he has uh, to an extent because he has that charisma, but I think that charisma allows him to keep pushing it as far as uh, as far as he ends up going.
0: Mm. it's the closest I think ever ever seen any human come to playing a great white shark uh, <laughs> in the sense he is so kind of single-minded of purpose uh, and so kind of deadly um but of course he's helped by probably what must be one of the best scripts of all time um in which literally every line is loaded with subtext mm. and uh everything is just so barbed and kind of mean-spirited <laughs> um it must have been a lot of fun for them to do
1: yeah, and it has one of my favourite ever exchanges, which has now been immortalised as the titles of two episodes of Breaking Bad, which is The Cat's Out the Bag and The Bag's In The River, <laughs> <laughs> which is just a great, uh, wonderful turn of phrase. And, and you're right, it has one of the most, just in, from a pure writing perspective, it's so enjoyable to hear these people throwing back barbs at each other at you know very high speed. But mm. all, all kind of putting their own uh, their own spin on it, so it doesn't feel like just one person has sat down and write it, wrote it. It's not uh, kind of the samey characters spouting the same lines. You know, there's a there's a clear difference to how Hunziker talks and to how Tony, Tony Curtis talks as a mm. more kind of uh, nervy and uh, uh, desperate character.
0: Mm. It is one kind of giant morally ambiguous soup uh, that film. Um, to the extent that I thought I watched it very recently, and thought that Max Clifford might have looked at that and thought that Hansecker hes a—he's a hero. I want to <laughs> aspire to be like that person because, um, Lancaster's performance and the character it was written kind of like merged together to give one of give us kind of one of Hollywood's kind of all time great monsters.
1: Yeah, and it's also certainly from a historical perspective it's really interesting to imagine a world in which you know gossip columnists could destroy lives
0: mm.
1: like there's still an uh, an air of that nowadays but i feel like celebrities or or people in the public eye are able to uh control their image a lot more than they could those days and i think it it's interesting to imagine that someone who just writes for a newspaper could have that kind of power to make or break people's careers.
0: Mm. I have to say that I did think of um, uh, the um, Sweet Smell of Success quite a lot when I was watching Nightcrawler mm. uh, last year. In the sense that, even though they're kind of very different types of film, they're kind of approached in very different ways. Um, the kind of points they're making about the day's media um, are both the, the the way they're making them both very very similar.
1: Yeah, it's probably closer to that than to network, which is what it was compared to a lot. Mm. Uh, I think because it, they're both again Nightcrawler and Sweet Mother success they're not trying to be kind of big allegories. They're more concerned of telling their individual stories and they have broader points to make. Mm. Whereas uh Net- Network as great a film as it is is very didactic in that respect.
0: Yeah. Um I do love Network, and I would say it is, you know, one of the greatest scripts ever written. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's a, you know, if you're ever going to get into kind of film studies 101, you can kind of pick up Network pretty much anywhere and have something to talk about. But it is kind of of high on the smell of its own farts a lot when it's talking. Um, uh, It kind of, it's so knowingly, Uh, kind of poking what it's making fun of um, that it's hard to kind of, it it doesn't quite have that distance that uh, that, um, the Sweet Smell of Success has
1: Yeah, and Sweet Smell of Success I think has slightly more well-rounded characters their characters have kind of a sweaty human desperation to them, whereas Mm. I think Network's characters are, in the case of someone like Howard Beale, they're a little more cartoonish and they're, yeah. they they never feel like real people, or like the Faye Dunaway character feels a little kind of cold and mm. not entirely human. In there, it it, it, it it occupies the heightened world of satire more than uh, Sweet Smell of Success. So Sweet Smell of Success is a very very dark film that doesn't and does make some satirical barbs, but it is more kind of a drama slash occasional dark comedy before it it kind of gets into those bigger areas
0: it's kind of also a bit noirish as well isn't it yeah Um, it exists
1: in very much the same world but instead of you know people running around with guns they're trying to you know spill spill dirt on people
0: yeah plant kind of weed in people's pockets and have a corrupt cop turn them over some of those characters do literally just kind of occupy that same universe
1: yeah, you can kind of imagine they're the, the sort of characters who are just out of frame in most noirs. Like if mm. uh, if if a detective needed help with something, they're the sort of character they would go to, and they'd be in maybe two scenes, and then you'd never see them again. But here, they're at the they're in the center of the frame.
0: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I keep getting the sweet smell of success confused with the secret of my success, which <laughs> is. The Michael J. Fox film from the early eighties, which is um, not very good, I wouldn't recommend it.
1: Is that the one where he does lots of cocaine, or is that Bright Lights, Big City?
0: That's Bright Lights, Big City. Uh, the Secret of My Success. I think he becomes like a, like a successful stockbroker or something, um, uh, and from there, various hijinks ensue. Um,
1: does he use but... an almanac to play the stocks?
0: If only, if only you know, he doesn't. He just uses his natural gifts i'm not sure i can't remember it uh um yeah but does, i do because really
1: a... good at guessing stocks around the full moon
0: <laughs> yeah he does it while surfing on top of a van um <laughs> um but no yeah um there is one of those uh there's like a kind of farcical bed swapping scene right um which is entirely set to that song by yellow that goes do 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 <laughs> um that one um Yeah, anyway, that was a fucking weird uh, kind of diversion. Um, But yeah, Uh, Burt Lancaster, he was all right, wasn't he, Ed?
1: Yeah, Uh, great actor, interesting producer, and uh, someone who uh, I think had a a willingness to take big risks that uh, paid off more often than they didn't, which Mm. is uh, quite rare in Hollywood in both cases, that someone would be willing to stake their fame and celebrity on you know, projects that may not make money and that a lot of them would uh, would turn out okay. I think uh, he's one of those actors along with uh, a favourite of ours, Jeff Bridges, who mm-hmm. if you just kind of worked your way through his entire uh, filmography, you would uh, have a hell of a time.
0: Mm. Yeah, and would also have to watch Blown Away, um, <laughs> but you know, everyone's got one in their cupboard. Um, so yeah, that was Burt Lancaster. Uh, Our latest artist profile, I think we're kind of more than halfway gone now, aren't we, Ed, with our 10 for the year?
1: Uh, Yeah, I believe so. Uh, I think we've got another five or six planned. I know we have a a, a kind of Christmas, an extra one for Christmas as kind of a treat to ourselves.
0: Yeah, yeah, we do. Um, I look forward to, but like the next artist profile, which we'll have with you next month or... Later this month, because we're trying to kind of uh, catch back up after six weeks off, or so. um, we're going to be talking about um. Someone we also talked a lot about on the alternate one hundred, um, we're talking about Eddie Murphy. aren't we, Ed.
1: We are, yes. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to talking about four of the films in that in that episode.
0: <laughs> yes, and Ed uh, jests uh, like because to kind of just pull the curtain back on the magic. We've already recorded that one. Um, and uh, I can remind Ed that he very much did enjoy talking about four of those films, and we really didn't like talking about one of them. Mm. Uh, but it was a fun episode, yep. and it would be cool to hear ourselves in the past, in the future.
1: Yeah, I think uh, I'll put that one out uh, at the end of the month, so that we're uh, we make up for the month we didn't put one out. Yeah, but that's, that's a very that's a very good one.
0: But yeah, we'll return to uh, regular programming next week um, with something kind of uh, interesting, I'm sure. Um, but until then it's goodbye from me
1: and goodbye from me and goodbye from me